Hello everyone, welcome back. This is Cameron Wilberson and we are here for part two of my interview with Theodore Goss. This time we'll be talking about Sarah Bernhardt, uh, who was a famous French actress and uh, a, a sculptor who really took control of her self-image and her public image in a way that I don't think um, many actresses get credit for then or now. And from there, we'll talk about writer's craft. Uh, so if you are a writer and you're listening to this, then take out your pen and paper or notepad or laptop and take note. You're going to get about 15 to 20 minutes of a master's class. In that conversation, we will be talking about how Theodore Goss's training in poetry has influenced uh, her prose. And it may not be in the way that you think. Finally, we're going to end part two of our conversation uh, discussing, well, what makes something real in a story and how do you make room for, uh, for the imagined world? And specifically, how and why Theodora Goss does this herself and the ideas that she thinks are important enough to you know, spend 7,000, 100,000 words uh, writing about. So let's get to the interview. Bernhardt was a famous actress of her day. She was amazing in that she's one of the first figures that really took full control of her own publicity. Um, and she was very powerful, wonderful actress, very, very famous. And she was also surprisingly a sculptor. Um, Did she come to that later on, or is that something she'd been doing? You know, doing? I don't know. I don't know exactly when she started doing sculpture, but um, she sculpted something that is now in the um, Boston Museum of Fine Arts. It's actually an inkwell. It's maybe six inches high, yeah. and it is a bust of herself that represents her you know, from the neck up as this very respectable Victorian woman, but then she has bat wings and she has claws and you realize that she's a kind of Gothic Sphinx and the ink, which she used to write, right? So it's a, it's something creative in there. Mm -hmm. The ink is held in her paws. We're looking at this right now and it is, at first it's, it's jarring because you see her face and you can see it. she's definitely beautiful Yeah. and then you see everything else is grotesque below the neck. I, her claws right. also has this... I'm not sure if it's a necklace, but it's this, maybe like a baby demon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right it looks here. like a little demon right in front of her. Um, so she she's sculpting herself as demonic, and this is a creative space for her because it's going to be on her desk, and it's a private space, too. Uh, and this is a way that she's representing herself. She was also... She, she never a, sold that. It was just for her. It was for her. She was a very beautiful woman, and she was painted by many of the famous painters of mm -hmm. her day, and she's represented in this... Yeah, in this gorgeous way. So this is someone who really could have herself represented in very different ways. Yeah, and, and she decided to take control and taking control of that and do something that I think the other artists, male artists, wouldn't have done. Like I even like question her sanity. Like why yeah. would she want to be looked at as this? And I think thing. there are two ways to think about it. One is that when you're a woman, you are in some ways a social other, um, much more so obviously in the 19th century than nowadays especially in the 19th century in art, it's really, really common to represent women as monsters. And we have these, the, the image of the woman monster and the femme fatale, which, mm. as you said, goes back to Lilith, right? Uh, and even before that. Um, but the, the image of the deadly woman, the fatal woman, this is one of the great themes of art. So you have uh, artists representing women in this way. If you flip that around, if you are actually a woman, 
and you look at that and I see my students they, they look at this and they're like okay so in some ways this represents a kind of prejudice against women but then on the other hand there's something really badass about Medusa right like what if you took that flipped it around and went I'm Medusa I'm identifying with Medusa and I've got snakes for hair and I'm going to turn you to stone you can get a different message you can broadcast a different message if you're a female monster there's a certain disadvantage to that but then there's also a real strength in that to say yo I'm a monster and right? to be able to own all of that along with the consequences that goes with it and there's also yeah. the difference between being a beautiful monster that could be representative of a female she's beautiful and deadly like Medusa or something else that is not you know the the desired the desired form we've talked about this in some of my classes it's it's complicated and interesting issue because most monsters most female monsters are represented as beautiful whereas a lot of male monsters are not represented as beautiful they're strong strong scary mm -hmm. um and what happens is frankenstein's monster mr hyde you can tell at once that they're monsters right like you can identify them you're like you're a monster i'm running away female monsters tend to be beautiful and so um, you don't run away. And in some ways, that's it's more dangerous, too late. Yeah. right? Because what you do with a female monster often is you are seduced by her, you fall in love with her. This is where we get the idea of the femme fatale. Mm -hmm. The word vamp comes from vampire, mm -hmm. right? And the real exception to this is the vampire because whether male or female, vampires exactly. are beautiful. So the male vampire is actually much more like a female monster. Yeah. Plus, he can reproduce. Except for Nesferatu. Nosferatu. Yeah, he's he's different. He's just ugly. He's scary. <laughs> he got a problem. Yes. Um, he's much more the stereotypical male monster. If you don't mind, I'd like for you to read. Sure. Any section you would like me to read from. Here it is. It's a part okay. that's highlighted in orange. Okay. So this is from the first paragraph. Here's how it goes. In the corners of the alleys, Men without legs perch on wooden carts, telling their stories to a crowd of ragged children, making coins disappear into the air. Women from the mountains, their faces prematurely old from sun and suffering, call to me in a dialect I can barely understand. Their stands sell eggplants and tomatoes, the pungent olives that are distinctive to Sumerian cuisine, video games. I ended there because in this paragraph, I mean, there's, there's more to it for readers, so readers go out and buy this book, Best American Science Fiction and Fantasy, edited by John Joseph Adams. You have this layer. You've, you've said it. We know where it is. And then you tell us basically when with video games. And I yeah. just, I, I love that. It stops you for a moment. You say, oh, this is where it is and when it is. And I wonder if because of the training and maybe in poetics that you're seeing something when you're writing that maybe someone who's only trained in prose might not necessarily catch and, and constructing uh, your world. Because it's not a list, but it's like they're, they're nouns. These are things that you're yeah. now populating your world with. Yes. Plus, one of the things about that paragraph is that you're on the move. Because actually yes. this is... He's walking um, through a bazaar. Yeah, this is your protagonist. And he is walking through a bazaar. And so he is... Um, describing all of this and what I'm trying to do in that description is exactly what you said it's um, give you both spatial breadth which is here is where we are mm -hmm. and also temporal locate you locate you spatially and locate you temporally as well as give you um, all sorts of sensory details so you're like oh I'm smelling stuff I'm tasting stuff uh, I'm seeing colors yeah. the other thing is with the video games um, one thing that I talk to my students about, this is something 
This is something I learned from teaching. I looked at scenes and I would go, you know, there's no tension in this scene. Why is there no, there's nothing interesting happening in this scene. And to create tension in a scene, what you need is things pulling against each other. You need opposites. And the opposites here are like fantastical, beautiful things and video games, right? Mm -hmm. The modern things. And, and if you don't have that opposition in a scene, if you don't have things pulling against each other, the scene lies flat on the page. And that's, um, I, when I think about writing, I think about it a lot in terms of craft because it is a craft. It's like making pottery. It's like choreographing a dance. It's like ballet. I wasn't going for poetic. I was going for precise. Mm. If I have a sentence that's really beautiful in a story, but it doesn't have any story function, I take it out because I want everything to be functional, right? It's like Frank Lloyd Wright building a building. Um, he can make it beautiful, but you also want everything to have some sort of function, some sort of meaning. So hopefully every word is doing at least two different things in a story. It's not just sort of being there to be pretty. So even in your novels, you do the same thing? That I try. I mean, you know, I'm doing over a <laughs> hundred and... What, the, the novel that's coming out next summer is 120,000 words approximately, so... Hopefully, I've scrutinized most of those 120,000 words. Um, I, I've tried. It's hard when you've got that many words in play. Um, yeah, but it's... Uh, well, definitely in the short story, it, it, it's, it has to be there. Sure. Yeah, but you know, the funny thing is people talk about poetry, and they use it for a sort of shorthand um, for pretty writing. But actually, I write poetry. Poetry, for me, is much harder to write than a short story and it's got to be every single word in the poem has to mean something it's got to be there for a reason it's not just pretty writing it's got to and the poem has to have tension and it has to have strength and it has to live and so every word has to be structural it's like and you absolutely know absolutely connected in every way to yeah else. yes exactly uh like in a house there are parts of the house they're like beams that are structural and beams that aren't and you can take out the ones that aren't mm -hmm. in a poem there's no room for non-structural beams something like that right so i think actually what poetry has taught me to do is to write as economically as i can i mean the other thing that that passage is supposed to do is give you an insight into the mind of the protagonist he's like man this is a really weird place and that's because he's an outsider he doesn't belong here i want to talk about the real again like the realism in your stories mm -hmm. it's because it, it, it makes space for those things that we kind of we've us i guess we kind of expect not to see and one of my favorite stories from the first forgetting is uh, a statement in the case it was the one about yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. it was about the man from hungary yeah yeah which yeah. is where i was born and uh, which is also where I was two weeks ago. Um, and uh, it turns out that he's um, he's got sort of magical creatures and magical objects. Yeah, like, and it's from, it's from his wife or his, yeah. his, his, his new wife who is very, very American, very much wants to be American. And to be American, she is basically a stealing culture and that culture yeah. of the, these creatures and and selling it and selling them and of course it's 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 the eggs it's the it's the silverware it's creatures and it's and it's the creatures too and there's this moment it's multi-layered and it's and it's kind of um you're not quite sure what's going on and what's real because number yeah. one it's already being told by somebody else who's retelling a story and the part where uh it gets really magical he is guessing that this is probably this is probably what happened right? and he's also talking to somebody and and deliberately saying 
here here are the things I could say, but you know what? I'm not going to say that because because I'm going to get my friend in trouble. So here are the things I'm actually not going to confirm for you. Yeah, yeah. So this is off the record. So therefore, yeah. it could be whatever you decide. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's I love all that, but there's a moment where he where the protagonist the narrator uh, the narrator goes down to that room and he sees these creatures and it's scary. It's legitimately scary. You know, you have that you have a kid with a kid's head, basically, mm-hmm. uh, and everything else, and then realize again that they're the monsters, as scary as they are, they're not the real threat. They're not the monsters in the right. story. And you make it clear the very, 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 very early on that for me, like the change of the wife into the American uh, beco- <laughs> yeah. becoming the monster, um, that I thought was shocking and scary too, in a, in a, way, in a way too. Um, am, I, am I reading that the way that you, that you had meant when you had written it? That's a good question. I mean, um, yeah, I'm, I, you know, sometimes I write them and I look back at them and I go, oh yeah, okay, <laughs> could be read that way. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that is what happens. She does become a sort of monster um, because she's greedy. And in the end, if we really talk about what's monstrous, it's all the bad stuff. It's the greed. It's the vanity. It's the not being empathetic to other people. It's the... Um, demonizing of other people. I mean, that's the real monstrous stuff that we have in our world. And yeah. I, I'm sort of, I, I'm writing about that because that's the stuff that's important to write about. And thus ends part two of my interview with Theodore Goss. Uh, please come back for part three, which we will be airing on Monday, uh, sometime around uh, one or two o'clock. Now, um, before you go, just want to remind you that Theodore Goss's latest book the Strange Case of the Alchemist's Daughter is out uh, anywhere kick-ass books are sold, either hard copy or uh, ebooks online. And um, also, uh, please come and see us at ReaderCon 28. This, uh, this recording took place at ReaderCon 27 and ReaderCon 28. We will be launching uh, the Kickstarter for Season 2 of the Kaleidocast, which uh, just so happens to have a story from Theodore Goss. In the meantime, this is Cameron Roberson from Brooklyn Speculative Fiction Writers. Lovely talking to you.